I'd like for you to turn to the book of Psalms, number 139. Psalms number 139, we're going to look at verse 21 and 22. Now, last week I talked about God and love. And it can be a very passionate subject and come to quite a heated discussion when the question is asked, does God love everybody, including the ones that he said destroy them all? And we talked about that for a bit. And tonight I want to talk about God and hate. We'll just call it hate, right or wrong. Is it wrong for us to hate? Does God hate? You talk about a passionate subject. This is a passionate subject with a lot of people. Because a lot of people say that in 1 John 4, where we were last week, that God is love. One of the first verses of scripture any of us ever memorized was John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave. And if God loves, how could he hate? We could ask ourselves the same question. Can we as Christians who love the Lord, can we hate something? Is it required of us? Ought we to hate? Is it wrong to hate? Let's read this verse of scripture and then we'll begin dealing with this subject. Verse 21. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Do you believe that all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is profitable? Do you believe that? The New Testament says that's one of our main verses in theology. All scripture is inspired. It's not what Paul thought. It's not what Peter thought or anybody else thought. It's all what the Holy Spirit penned through these men. And the psalmist here, he says, Lord, I hate those that hate you. Do people hate God? To his own people, he said, you who despise me. In the last book in the Old Testament, God accused his people of despising him and his ways. The things that he gave them to do as a matter of showing their obedience to him and their love for him, he said they did it with disdain. Their attitude was bad. They hated it. They didn't like to do it. And God called them perverse. Not in Malachi, but in his people that approached him with the idea that I'm going to do this, but I really don't want to, and I don't like this, and I don't enjoy this, but I'm going to do it because you told us we have to do it. Now, God can describe that kind of an attitude towards him as hate. Let's look at a definition of hate to begin with tonight. Let me give you three different angles to come from. One, hate can be intense ill will towards somebody. It can be hostility, intense hostility. We see it in terrorism today. We have heard from terrorists that are Muslim that they hate America, they hate Jews, and they hate Americans. And their desire without even knowing you, without ever seeing you, without ever having any contact with you at all, their life's goal is to kill you. They hate your freedom. They hate the way you live your life. They don't want anything to do with it. They like to destroy the whole thing. Now that's hate. 
Now that's hate. You find hate, the same kind of intense dislike or a word that we use sometimes, M-A-L-E-V-O-L-E-N-C-E. How many of you know what that word is? Mal is seen on lots of words, malcontent, malnourished, maladjusted, mal something. The word mal means bad. And volens, from which we get our word volition, means to will. And this means to will badly against somebody, to wish evil on people, to wish that somebody would die, wish something bad would happen to you. Now, there are varying degrees of that. I don't think anybody in here would say that about anybody. But you might be surprised in the Bible how God interprets our ill will toward each other. He said that could be described as hatred. We call each other names. And there's one place in Matthew 5, he said, you call your brother certain kind of name like Raka or stupid, empty-headed idiot. He said, you're in danger of hellfire to address another human being in terms like that. Because what prompted you to say that is an intense dislike for that person. And we see it everywhere. We're living in a time of great anger and ill will and hatred. In the last days, you're going to find that kids will be against their parents, parents against their children. Dislike for governments, dislike for authority. They dislike it so much they try to destroy it. Well, that's hate. A lot of race crimes, hate crimes are called. White people don't like black people, don't like Hispanics, or Hispanics don't like whatever. You can take it either way you want to go with it. But a desire to see somebody destroyed or done wrong or out of your life is hatred. It's a very bad thing, and God will not tolerate it because it is something that he himself hates. He hates that kind of an attitude. A lot of people hate homosexuals because of their sexual orientation, I think is a politically right way to say that. And they hate them because of the way they want to live in that area. And they do all kinds of things in some groups that are designed and are organized to just destroy people like that. Well, that's hate. Now, obviously, that's not a thing that a Christian is allowed to do. It's not a thing a Christian can do, even though there was a time in many of our lives we did hate things like that. We might not have done anything. We might not have harmed anybody, but you were glad when harm came to a lot of people. I mean, even today, you see things happening to people like terrorists and Things that happen over in those kind of countries and those people suffer more than we ever have. Even though they hate us and things bad happen to them, we kind of take a little, well, that's what you get. Well, see, that's wrong as Christians because whatever fostered that is based on what you saw coming from that and it's a desire to get even or revenge or vengeance. And that's totally what belongs to God. It doesn't belong to us. Hate can also mean something no more than rejection, just simple rejection. Like the psalmist talks about fools hate knowledge. Well, they don't hate knowledge as knowledge itself. They hate the knowledge of God because it's so confining and so restrictive. The knowledge of God is what brings guilt. It's what your conscience has to deal with. And people don't like it in a world that's in a free fall. Nobody likes to be confined by religious ideas or religious duties or observances. 
They love knowledge in the fact that they want to go to college, spend thousands of dollars to learn things. They turn on the TV every night, usually if it's news time, to learn something. They buy a paper to learn something. They get involved in conversations about things they don't know anything about in order to learn something. So knowledge is something that everybody wants. When it comes to the knowledge of God, God says fools hate knowledge. The fools hate knowledge. That's in Proverbs 1.22. In the second commandment, you know, the first one, he's God. The second one is don't make any idols. Don't make any images, any likenesses of God. God is spirit. You can't make something that looks like God because God is spirit. He's not a figure. Of course, he's manifested himself in Jesus. The second commandment says, if you serve anything else besides God, if you have anything else you bow to in your life, he said that you're on the verge of hate of those that hate me. Whenever you want something else besides God that your life is devoted to, dedicated to, it could be your kids. It could be your home or your career. That could be an idol. It's what gets your best time and your most energy. And you give God some time in your life. You give God a little time every week because you're, you, know, you go to church. You're a church person. But who gets your best time is not God. And he said, that's not good. Our convictions get us rejected by the world. The world doesn't really hate you just because you exist. They hate your convictions. They hate the fact that you testify, if you live right, you testify against the world. Remember Jesus said in John 7 and John 15, he says, Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify against it. And if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And when you're living in obedience to me and you're letting me live my life through you as you yield to me and you're faithful to God and you're letting his ways become your ways, he said the same hate that was directed toward Jesus in his day is the same hate that will be directed towards you. They don't mind you coming in eating their food and in restaurants and buying their products. They just don't want to hear what you have to say. They don't want to see you live your life that's in restraint from the ways of this world. They just don't want to see it. They, in effect, hate that. But that's more like rejection than something else. A third way you can say about hate, biblical hate, is that it means to love less. Turn to Luke 14. You know this verse fairly well, I'm sure. Luke 14 and verse 26. This is the use of the word hate. This use of the word hate here does not mean intense hostility or extreme dislike. But it does use the word hate, so it means something. We have to find out what it means. He says, if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, let's just use the word hate for just a moment and say this. Is there ever a time that we ought to hate? Just using one verse and the word, just quoting that verse, is it a good thing to hate? In this sense it is, because this is not this type of thing. This is hate in the sense of loving less. Because you're supposed to love your parents. Is the word brethren mentioned in there also? 
John writes, if you don't love your brothers whom you do see, how can you love God whom you can't see? Using the word love. Love in the sense of commitment. That's the highest expression of love there is. Is you to commit yourself to somebody else's well-being. Now, hatred here doesn't mean, again, ill will against them. I mean, a man wouldn't marry the woman that he's supposed to husbands love your wives. Is that still in the Bible? And then get saved and say, you know what? I hate you. I can't even be the Lord's disciple unless I hate you. If hate meant what the English word hate means, you'd have to get rid of her or her you. Get rid of your sisters and your brother. Get rid of your own self, I guess, because it says, yeah, your own life also. Just quit and die. But what did he mean? We know this. We know just naturally that Jesus did not teach us to hate each other. Because it says too much in the Bible about loving one another. He didn't teach a husband to hate his wife. Didn't teach a wife to hate her husband. We're not taught to hate our sisters and our brothers. We're not taught to hate our own lives. In fact, we're told to love other people as you love yourself. That is, you care for yourself. You want yourself to do well and feel good, so you take care of yourself. Well, hate here is Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37, where he mentions this. You can look over there at it. Matthew 10, he that loveth father or mother, he says, more than me is not worthy of me. So you know you love your mother and your father, and the word hate that Jesus used is not intended to say you intensely dislike or you wish ill will against your family. It just means that while you love your brothers and your sisters and you love those in the church and you love your parents, you can never love them more than you do God. And when you're ever given the chance to choose which one you're going to love, you have to choose God. Because if you choose anything before God, anybody or anything else. He said, you're not worthy of him. Now, love is a choice. And hate is a choice. If you wish to love, you can love. If you wish to hate, you can hate. If you want to have a bad attitude, that's a choice. If you want to be kind and gentle, that's a choice. If you want to be rude and bitter, that's a choice. It's a choice we all make. And if you love God, you will make the right choices. No matter what it costs you, no matter where you are, no matter what the end of your choice is, you'll make the right choice because you love the Lord. And you hate anything that would make you choose between him and something else. You hate the alternative which in Matthew's account means you love less. So you see, hate then is really the opposite of love. Think of the verse in Proverbs where he talks about chasing your son. He said, to spare the rod is to hate your child. You think of that. This is how God thinks. This is the mind of Christ. This is God showing us in his word how he thinks about what we do. We want to spare the rod because we don't want to see our children cry. We don't want to see them suffer. We talk ourselves out of what they did. Well, that wasn't that bad. I just don't feel good when I have to spank a child or have to come to that conclusion. 
I read Dr. Spock's book, and Dr. Spock said, if you ever come to the place where you strike your child, you're a failure. And I don't want to be a failure. Well, what does Dr. God say? <laughs> what does the Bible say about it? Here's what God says. If your child who is born with the nature of disobedience lodges in his heart and who naturally does wrong and will grow up wrong and make bad decisions, look at the world. A one who will naturally recoil at anything that is godly and spiritual, doesn't like to go to church, doesn't like to sit in church, wants to do something else because it's in his life. He's naturally like that. When this child rebels and jerks away and sasses or wants to sass and doesn't do the things you tell him to do, he said the answer to that is the rod. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction driveth it far from them. And yet there are multitudes of Christian people in churches don't like to hear this stuff in correcting children about using a rod. They never did. Nobody used one on me. I guarantee you that. And then you think, well, that attitude you have is pretty evident that you weren't corrected. But he said, if you spare the rod, you really don't care if your child gets corrected or if you being that child's parent teaches them that you can't do that. You have to submit to my authority. Now, you didn't. I'm going to spank you. And whatever else you got, you got to talk. Maybe sit in a corner. I'm not big on this timeout stuff. I didn't know what timeout was until I started playing basketball. <laughs> and now today they say, well, if kids act up in class, they have timeout, which is nothing, absolutely nothing. How many timeouts you get today? I got five, man. Now they start bragging about how many timeouts they had. Give them a good swat or 10 on the behind where the rod was designed to be used. That's where God put the most meat in one place. <laughs> You'll find they won't brag about how bad it hurt. Oh, mine hurt worse than you. Oh, man, I got a real bad one. I'm going to get some more tomorrow. They won't do that because the rod of correction will drive that kind of foolishness out of them. But he said, you spare the rod, you hate your son. Now, that's what your book says. But you use a rod because it's a rod of what? Correction. correction. If you are unwilling to correct your child God's way, then what happens to your child? Well, your child literally is hated. That is, not despised, not I wish you were dead, but it's just I don't love you enough, and I don't love God enough to deal with you the way God wants me to deal with you. I would rather just put up with your mouth and give you five bucks and you're big enough and get you out of the house and they have to correct you. Unless some high school teacher somewhere dread going to school every day because he has to see you every day. I think my generation, the last year I taught school, I think it was a couple years after that they weren't allowed to spank anymore. I don't know what they did with them because I was down in the shop. I was a shop teacher not using the paddle down there in the shop would have been bad. But you get the rod out, get the big fat rod down there in the shop area. Once in school started, you'd use it a couple times out in the hallway. It seemed to have a real good effect on discipline in the school. They got quiet, they minded, and they, yes sir, no sir, which was good. But see, it's supposed to do that. You can't tolerate you acting like that. 
You're not allowed to just speak out loud whenever you want to. I hear today that in classrooms, kids can talk out whenever they want to. All of you that are over 50 know that there was a time you talked when you shouldn't and you went out in the hallway and then you groaned instead of talked. Well, they sent you down to the principal's office and that was worse. But back to the subject, hate. God sees our indifference, our rejection of his way in application in our life to our children or our own lives or other things. A rejection of that is a form, a type of hatred. It's not intense dislike. It's just that I really don't want to. I just don't see why I should have to do it that way. And so we draw back from doing things that way because we just don't want to. Now, what do we hate? What is it we should hate? We've already seen one. In the Psalms here, look back in Psalm 97 and verse 10. Very simply, he said, ye that love the Lord, you should do this. 97 and verse 10. Ye that love the Lord, what do you do? Hate evil. Well, what's evil? Now, you got to find out, don't you? Jesus told his disciples once, he said, then, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children. You know, being evil doesn't mean you can't do good things. It's just that you do good things for the wrong reasons. It's not under God. It's under yourself or under the praise of men or something. In that 10th verse, he says that you that love the Lord hate evil. Learn what God hates. Well, God doesn't hate. Well, now just follow me a little bit here. Learn to hate what God hates. And if you will hate what God hates, then you will hate what is evil. Now, what does God hate? Does the Bible have any indication of things that God hates? Turn to Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, it's the last book in the Old Testament, and Romans chapter 9. Now, we're told to hate evil, and I think anything that would disagree with God, I think you would agree with me, would be evil. This is a very difficult subject and passage of Scripture here for a lot of people because it just doesn't fit our image and our picture that we have of God. We as Christian people, we have molded an image of God and that's the way we want him to be and we don't want anything to change it. God is love. God loves everybody. I guess they think God's going to save everybody. God's not against anybody. Let me ask you a question. If God loves everybody, he's against nobody. Well, that's just practical there. If God loves everybody, he is against nobody. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, when did you love us? Then he points to Esau and Jacob. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I love Jacob. Well, why did he hate Esau? What did he do? Well, he goes on to say, and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Let me ask you something. Now look at it. If God lays waste your habitations, is it a sign that he loves you? Why is it hard to respond to that? If he said, I love Jacob, I blessed him like the sands of the sea, Esau, well, he's cursed. Who did he love? Who did he not love? Romans 9. Nobody's glad about hate. Hate's not a fun subject, not a good subject. 
but it's necessary for us to know it because the Christian life involves not only loving God with all your heart, but you must also hate because you love. There are things that are offensive to God. You must hate that. There are things in this world that are evil. You must hate it because if you don't hate it, you will eventually do it. If you don't hate your sins from yesteryear, eventually you'll turn back to your sins. You have got to hate it. You've got to see what it did to you, the effect it had on you, the type of person sin made you out to be, how hypocritical, superficial, indifferent, and ugly and nasty you were. And if you go back to sin, that's what you go back to. And if you've escaped that once and you go back to it, chances are you'll never come out of it. You have to hate God to go back to that. And the only way you can escape that is to love God and hate that behind you. I hate what it did to me. I hate the fool that sin made out of me. Sin treated me like a dog. I thought I was having fun and I was controlled by something outside of myself. I wasn't free. I was evil. I was a sinner. And if I don't hate what sin did to me and the sins that I committed and the effect of those sins, then eventually I will turn away from God and I'll go back to those things if you don't forsake it. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. Uh, hold on tonight. I know you've heard this before, but just accept it. Verse 11, for the children being not yet born, having neither done anything good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written. We just read it in Malachi. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Let me ask you a question. What did Esau do for God to say I have hated him? Nothing. He said that before they were born. Are y'all still with me? Does God have the right to do this? All right, bear with me. Verse 13 again, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now what shall we say then? That's not fair. That's not right. That's what we say. Election, sovereignty, that's not fair. But how did Paul answer that? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. God can't do wrong. I know I harp on this once a month anyway, but let me harp on this that time of month. I'm going to harp on it again. There is no rule that man has ever made that God must abide by. Man's best designs, best doctrinal understanding, God is never obligated to anything that is of man. We have a picture of God that he must do for all of us equal. That if he shows you your sins, he's got to show us all our sins. If he loves one, he has to love all. That's the way we get this thing about love. If he loves one, he loves everybody. But what does the Bible say? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Is that fair? You see, it's fair because, what did he go on to say? Verse 15 is tough too. He saith to Moses, I have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and whom I will have compassion on, I will have compassion. And verse 18 says, therefore, he has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will, he hardens. So the question is asked, 
Verse 16, so then it is not of us who will or want to do or nor of him that runneth, but it's God that shows mercy. All of us were sinners. The only hope any sinner has in this life of being God's child is for God to show mercy to it. Mercy travels down the road we call grace, or that is by the avenue of grace, mercy comes to lost, undone people who cannot undo themselves. God is under no obligation to show mercy and grace to everybody. While the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men everywhere, it will only be effective in the ones for whom it was done. You see, I do not believe that Jesus died to save everybody. Because if he died to save everybody and anybody is lost, then he failed. I believe he died to save his own. I do. I believe in election, just like he said here. He saved Jacob, he didn't save Esau. He can do that because if a man dies in this world, he doesn't die because he wasn't chosen, he dies because of his sin. We were all sinners. The reason we escaped our sin is because God showed mercy to us. He has no obligation to show mercy to everybody. You should be glad that he showed it to you. We cannot hold God to an unrighteous doctrine. He said, Jacob, I love Esau, I hate it, and I can do that. Hated means I rejected him. He didn't destroy Esau right away. Esau didn't have the blessings that Jacob had. There were certain promises made to Esau, but the Bible said he's a wild man, that his descendants would be wild, and they are today. They're wild. They're fanatical. Listen to me. They cannot be anything else. They cannot do anything else. They are what they are. He said, well, why would that happen? Well, why would he do that? What do you say about Pharaoh? In verse 17, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this cause have I raised you up. Can he do that? God raised up Pharaoh to show his strength. He can do what he pleases with his creation. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 19, thou will say then, why does he find fault then? Why would he find fault with anybody if he picks some and doesn't pick others? You know what Paul's answer was? Verse 20, about the best any of us could get. Who are you to reply against God? Who are any of us in here to tell God he's wrong or not right? Who? Shall the thing formed, that's us, say to the thing that formed it, why'd you do that? Verse 21, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Can a potter do that? Well, let me ask you this question. Could a man that works and builds things, could he saw up some trees and get some lumber? Could he make a beautiful home out of one and a toilet out of another one? There is no rule that says out of this lumber, he has to build it the way somebody else thinks. It's his lumber. He can build it any way he wants to. If he wants to take wood and make beautiful things out of it for him to live in or for you to live in, that's his privilege. If he wants to take what's left over out here and, and make a little house with a little half moon on it out behind the house, nobody knows what that is today. An outside toilet. We used to turn them over as a kid. But anyway, he can do that, can he? Can he do that? We have nothing to say against anything he does. 
And if he saves us and brings us out of our darkness unto him, then what we say to him is, thank you, Lord. With grateful hands and clean hands and a pure heart and with thanksgiving, we say, thank you, Lord. Had it not been for your grace and your mercy, I would be one of those that don't care. But now I do care. I'm not care because I've done something. I care because he's done something. Romans 9 is not an easy verse of scripture for the love bugs of this age, but it is in the Bible because it's, it's so necessary to understand. Amen. Listen, when God loves, the people that he loves are eternally grateful. It's the most powerful single effect that a human being can have in this life is for God to love him. Heaven's doors are open, the very nature and the essence of God is opened up to you. He comes to dwell inside of you. The power that created the world is a living force inside of you. He can't do more than that. This power, when he bestows his love upon you, he committed himself to saving you. Are you with me? He committed himself to saving you. No man's going to pluck you out of his hands. You know why? Because when he saved you, his intentions was to keep you. In fact, his prayer in John 17, you've heard this. John 17, he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world. All these other people in the world. He says, I pray not for the world. I pray for them you have given me. He's praying for us. I hope he's praying for you. That he caught you rescued you, redeemed you, planted you in his courts, and he that started a good work in you is going to complete it. Now, I've taken all that time on the subject of hate to talk about love. But here's the deal. God loves you, and he hates sin. He hates sinners. He hates all workers of evil, all evildoers. Bible says he hates that. So should we. We were like that. We were like that, but now he's changing us. Turn to Proverbs 6. You know this one also. I hope that you do. You should. For in Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, these six things doth the Lord hate. Does your Bible say hate? We could say it like this. God has extreme dislike. There's an intense hostility from the mind and the sight of God toward man who does these things. This is what God hates. Verse 16, these six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. One is a proud look that notice me, ain't I something, look. You see it in athletes all the time. Secondly is a lying tongue. People that don't tell the truth, but distort the truth and tell a lie. Thirdly, hands that shed innocent blood. Not only would that include terrorists today, it would also include the doctors who commit abortions. It would include that and anything in between. Verse 18, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, a design to do evil to somebody, something that's wrong or unclean. Feet that be swift and running to mischief, getting in trouble, 
causing harm and so forth. Verse 19, again, a false witness that speaketh lies. God hates lying. He hates it. A false witness that speaks lies, and he, what's the end of it say? He that what? He that soweth discord among brethren. Should we hate that? But how many times are we involved in it? Side choosing, seditions. Just like the church at Corinth, they had all of these heady people and you had a group here, a group here, a group here, and a group here, and they didn't even care about each other. As long as they had their little group and they had plenty, they don't care about the rest of them. That's not right. Whether we like it or not, God put us together. We are thus obligated to one another to care about each other. And sometimes it might take years of intense walking with the Lord to get that. It's slow coming around. Sowing discord among brethren. We ought to hate that too. Look in Psalms 5. Just go back to the book of Psalms. and Look at verse 4. This is what we ought to hate. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Well, if evil will not dwell with God, it should not dwell with us either. That's why he said earlier that we should hate evil. Verse 5, the foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest what? Now, there it is. Your Bible says it. Thou hatest. And listen to me. God has no pleasure. No good is done on the behalf of God in anybody that works evil. And if we don't hate that, then we will tolerate that. Our society is teaching us today to tolerate perversion, to tolerate cohabitation, to tolerate a lot of things we used to not tolerate. The way of this world, the devil is subtle and crafty. It's just slowly disintegrating a lot of people's so-called convictions till they either don't have any more or they're afraid to have them. Well, what would people think? I'd lose all my friends. Did you hear what you just said? You lose all your friends. What friends are you talking about? What about having God on your side at the expense of your friends? Would that be right? Zechariah 8, verse 17. And let none of you imagine evil in your heart against his neighbor and love no false oath. For... All these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. Does God hate falsehood? Does he hate hypocrisy or a false oath? He hates that. We should hate that too. It's okay to hate what he hates. Look at chapter 11 and verse 8. He said, my soul loathed them. How many of you know the word loathe doesn't mean loved? It's not a misspelling of loved. God said, my soul loathed. Who does this soul loathe? In Zechariah there, verse 11 and verse 8. Who does this soul loathe? Chapter 11, the shepherds also I cut off in one month, and my soul loathed them. What if we translated that into a New Testament picture of those who call themselves shepherds, who themselves are called shepherds or leaders or pastors, but who are not honoring God with what they're saying, but honoring themselves and gaining a crowd. Does God hate that? 
then why does he tolerate that? Well, for some of us, it's a test. We get to see that, and then we get to realize what he's saying. He lets that stuff exist so I can preach about it. Not really, but those things happen like in Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams comes and he tells you something that happens and it happens, but then he misleads you by what he says, God's testing you to see whether you love him or not. Love meaning devoted to him in his way. Oh, but he did a miracle, but what's he saying? Well, it's not exactly what the Bible says, but come on. No, you know, come on to this. We're not animals. We don't come on. What he said was that God will test you to see who you love. If you love the Lord, you do what he said. That's what Jesus said. Well, anyway, that is true. Hosea 9.15 says, All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. For the uncleanness or the wickedness of their doing, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. Can God do that? Let me ask you a question. Can God give people up to their vile passions? Can God give people up to evil and love them no more? Of course he can. No wonder somewhere in this walk before the Lord comes, that verse that we are with fear and trembling, we're going to be saved. That God holds us to a fine line. Well, Brother Hamlin, that sounds awful legalistic. Well, turn to Psalm 119 and we'll try to get there. If you want to be legalistic, we can do that. I don't mind. I think we should all be legal with ourselves. Whether you all said amen or not, I think you should hold yourself to a fine line. Shouldn't you? Let me ask you something about that. If God's word is living and abiding in your heart, should it not become a conviction of your life? If it's abiding. Not just dwelling on it, but I mean, if it's a word you've heard that is seated and lodged in your heart, does it demand obedience? And what happens when you don't obey it? Doesn't your conscience bother you? Doesn't something inside alert you to the fact that you're not doing what he said you ought to do? If you love the Lord, you quit making excuses for why you're doing it. And you'll reject it, turn away from it, and will turn to God. Now, there'll be people, if you allow them to, they'll come into your lives as friends. And they will tell you that you're too strict. You're too tight. You're too narrow. You're not having any fun because fun's on chapter 7 of something. And they will try to talk you out of your disciplines and your convictions and try to get you to turn away from this holy one of Israel. Instead of the real deal, just accept a bowl of soup and sell your soul. Verse 113. This is an interesting verse. Verse 113 of Psalm 119. He says, I hate. Does your Bible say vain thoughts? You may have another translation that would properly have another word. Maybe double-minded. Any of you have one that says double-minded? I hate the double-minded. Now think about what he's saying here. This is what is disliked. This is what is rejected. This is what, no, I will not have that. I hate the double-minded, or another translation says the half-hearted. Those that are at best casual Christians, just satisfied with a meeting once in a while and, and a nice talk. 
but their life doesn't show the effect of the word. They have usually rejected and compromised the word to where it doesn't mean anything anyway. They've talked themselves out of living a life of holiness because they don't know anybody else that does. Here's what a dictionary says about the word vain thoughts. It's a masculine noun indicating double-mindedness, vanity of thought. It indicates a person who engages in double-think, a process of illogical thought, perverse thinking that distorts and reverses the truth. This is what a liberal is. This is what a liberal mindset is. It hears a word. It doesn't like the demands the word makes on your life. And therefore, it begins to see it differently, double-minded. Isn't there something about being double-minded in the New Testament? Here he said he hates the double-minded. And in the New Testament, in in the book of James, double-minded means the two-souled, two minds. Has a mind for what is right, but also has a mind for what is not right. And there's a war that goes on. And the Bible said this man cannot do the right things all the time because he's a double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. In fact, chapter 4 of James, I think it's verse 8, talks about the double-minded in less than flattering terms. I mean, you read that when you want to, but double-minded means you got a person who doesn't just zero in on what the Word says. That's right. That's what we do and make that his life. We call this single-eyed in the New Testament. He, He just sees it God's way, not two ways, but one way. He searches the scriptures. He satisfies himself that this is the way it's it's supposed to be, and and therefore he does that. He's not a wishy-washy person. He's not that Christian who takes no stands because of the cost of taking a stand. He tries to be whatever everybody else is because he is a double thinker. And yet behind all of his whole life is probably a life of iniquity that is self-serving. He likes to go to the little church, the quiet church, and he doesn't mind occasionally going to the loud church. He just likes, you know, I like to taste all of them. You just get a little bit of all of them and follows nothing. Some of you have been in here your whole life. You may not even know what I'm talking about. I was out there for years. I know what that's like out there. I know what's going on. I've thought before, we ought to take two weeks off, no church here for two weeks, and everybody go somewhere else for two weeks. Just go to another church for two weeks. If when you come back at the end of two weeks, if you liked where you were the best, don't come back anymore. Go to that church. I bet you there'll be a number of you that come back saying, I'm glad we're having church again. And it's not because of who's here. It's not because of me. You know that. But we pray for God to speak to us. And when he speaks to us, we wrestle. We have to deal with these things. Church is not just a little hour of, of comfort and joy. It could include that. But it's a time when God talks to us. And you're not living hard. You're not trying very hard. And you think that, well, God loves me. You know, he might really hate what you're doing. He hates all workers of iniquity. That ought to alarm all of us in here to think we need to be more careful about what we're doing with our lives. It's a privilege to be a Christian. The highest privilege there is. Look at verse 104. Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. 
Do you hate error? Should we hate error? What keeps us from error? The word. Isn't that what he said? Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Look at verse 128. That's easy to find. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. Does God hate a false way? Does he hate error? Listen to me. What does error do to us? It divides us. Error not only divides us, but it also separates us from God to where we no longer hear what he's saying the way he said it because somebody has perverted it. It is watered down or distorted so that it no longer means what it's supposed to mean. What did Jesus say in Matthew 15? He said, you by your traditions have made the word of God of no effect. Is the word supposed to affect us? Anybody that changes that will have his name taken out of the book of life. We read Revelation, the end of it. You don't mess with the word. This is how you keep yourself from error. You got to love it. You got to hold his precepts or the things that he has said. Look at verse 163. This goes back to lying again. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Why? Because thy word is truth. I love truth. Anything that's not truth, I hate it. How's that? Should we hate error? Should we hate falsehood? Of course we should. I'm asking you. What about our friends and fellowship and who we are all involved with? Any hate go on there? In 2 Chronicles 16, when Jehoshaphat came from helping Ahab, remember the story? He went and helped Ahab and got the arrow shot and Ahab died. Say yes. Okay. And when Jehoshaphat came back, Jehu, the prophet, came and he met Jehoshaphat. And a prophet can stop the king. He said to him, should you help the ungodly and love those that hate the Lord? Second Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 2. Should you help the ungodly and love those that hate the Lord? You got to understand that in this sense, you're helping benefit the ungodly by means of war and your resources and so forth. That doesn't mean if your neighbor's oxen across the street who's a heathen, fell in the ditch, you wouldn't help him get it out. You're a neighbor. You should do that. We're not to spend our time down here trying to see if we can make the world a better place to live. The world lies in darkness. You can't make it better. The world lies in the wickedness of this age. You're living in it. There's all kinds of evil designs in this world. One of the things that we are told to do is to love our brothers the love of fellow man, even the work that I do, the job I do is not supposed to be an evil job. I'm not into the gambling business or not into the alcohol business. If I'm going to do something, I must do something that benefits mankind. Building, fixing, helping, teaching, something, whatever you do that benefits your fellow man. This is one of our roles and functions in this world as we studied ethics. 
One of the things that God has given us to do in this world is to better those around us if we can. You can't save them. You can't save anybody. Only God can save. You can tell them about Jesus, but you can't save people. But you're telling them might be the thing that God uses to trigger his conviction in their life so that he can save them. You love people like that. That's the way you love people. You don't want to see them perish. God doesn't want to see you perish. God doesn't take pleasure in wickedness and evil and those that die. He has no pleasure in the death of a sinner. God doesn't say, yeah, he finally died. He could make people die anytime he wants to. He has no pleasure in all of that. There are things in this life that we have to hate. Hating your sin, hating the, your past, hating your mistakes, hating your weaknesses, hating the simple Simon way that you give in to your sin so easy. You got to hate it. That pornographic stuff that you carry around in your wallet or in your car or computer, you find that stuff. If you don't hate that, you'll keep doing it. God hates that. You know why he hates it? Because it's evil and it's unclean. And the spirit that is in all of that is the spirit you're toying with. And if you toy with it a little bit, you'll open the door to it and it comes in. Then you got an unclean spirit trying to worship and serve God. And you wrestle and you struggle and, oh man. But legalism, turn to Psalm 101 and I'll let you get eight points of legalistic occultism here. Before I read this, let me ask you a question. What if we were like this? What if we were this convicted as are written here? Listen at these things. What if we were like this? Psalm 101, beginning in verse 3. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. What do you do with that? I'm asking any of you. I don't want you to answer me. I'm just wanting you to think about it. He said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I refuse to watch, see, look at anything wicked. Verse 3 again, I hate the work of them that turn aside, that fall away. When people fall away, they take people with them. I hate that. Stay with it. Quit wandering around it. Make up your mind to live the Christian life. Quit being half-hearted about it. That's what the psalmist said. I hate them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A forward man, a perverse man, verse 4, a perverse heart shall depart from me. How do you know it? Because I won't have him around me. These people like to cuss and drink and swear. I will not let those people be in my presence. I might not be able to get away from them because of where I work, but I will never find these people in my life on my time. I will not know a wicked person. That is, I will not fellowship with a wicked person. Who would we fellowship with? Each other. Verse 5, whoso privately slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. Verse 7, he that worketh deceit shall not dwell in my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Man, this guy's kind of alone, isn't he? Who's going to be my friends? Did you hear what you just said? Who's going to be my friends? 
God has many people to be your friends with. He sure does. Lots and lots and lots of people. There's eight characteristics there. Let me ask you a question before I finish up tonight. Can the same thing be said about us that is said in Psalm 101? Are we like that? No wicked thing. Nobody that tells lies. No wicked person. No slandering person. No gossipy person. No evil talking, evil designed person. I don't have to be around people like that. A little leaven. And I'm telling you something, you don't need that either. So, in closing, when is it wrong to hate? The New Testament spends a whole lot of time, I can't quote all of these tonight, but in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14 and 15, right in the back, near the end of this book, we know that we have passed from death unto life. It is we're saved because. Because what? Because we love the brethren. That's where our commitment in the eyes of God to each other comes from. We love each other because that's what he tells us to do. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. Because the thing that causes murder so often is hate. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Let me ask you a question. If a man hates, does not love his brother, will he go to heaven? No. Are we okay with that? Doesn't matter if we are or not, does it? If you hate your brother, death abides in you. Death is lodged in you. And you have no eternal life in you. Now, in what ways do we hate each other? Maybe not intense desire to hurt and harm. I don't mean that. But in what ways do we reject people and just really don't want anything to do with you? Which God could say is a form of hatred. Indifference toward. I don't care. That's what they say to God. I don't care about your word. He said you hate me. So what are some of the ways that we are hateful people. How about resentful, bitter, offended? You ever been talked about? You ever been to church? What makes us bitter against each other? And don't tell me it doesn't happen. That's why we talk about people. They do things we don't like, and in being some way effective in fixing it, we just talk about it. I'm talking to all of us. I grew up like this. This is a natural way of life. But when we keep talking about people's mistakes and failures and we feel good about it, it's a form of hate. It's not brotherly love. It has nothing to do with brotherly love. It's brotherly indifference and brotherly hate. It's not brotherly love. Brotherly love is phileo. You often kiss brothers because that's the way they, I don't like that either. But I mean, you didn't kiss your enemies because you get stuck. But when the church met, it was a way of showing affection for each other. You know, I derive pleasure from being around you. You derive pleasure. We're Christians. We're in the same boat. God saved us. You came from that end of town. I came from this end of town. And God's putting us together and teaching us how to love each other and care about each other. We're so different. Shelbyville Christian Assembly is one of the most unique churches anywhere. This assembly right here. 
You know why? Because just about everybody here came from somewhere else. And if everybody that came from somewhere else left here, there'd be three or four local folks sitting in here. Or ten. But God brought a whole bunch of us in here, and we have found through the years, because of all the things that have happened and had to deal with, a whole lot of people didn't love anybody but themselves. We've gossiped and fought and chose sides and the airwaves, and even today they get on their computer and Facebook. I know it's Facebook, but it's Facebook, and they begin talking about stuff and saying things and chatter and agree. I know, I heard you, I agree with you. That's not Christian. There's one law in the Bible that the Bible says the whole of the law and the prophets are based upon this one sentence. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There's never been a time that I've heard stuff said about me that I said, praise God, that's good. What other juicy, nasty stuff have you heard? You know what I used to do when I hear people say things about me? Who said it? Well, I'll tell you one thing about them because that's hate. That's what the devil wants. That's the kind of reaction he wants you to have. Toughest thing to do is turn your cheek when it comes to gossip. And maybe even admit that what you've heard is right. Oh, Hamilton, he just, you know, blah, 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 blah. He's just a legalistic old coot. Well, maybe I am. Maybe I'm not for those of you that are laughing. Maybe I am. Maybe I am in a bad way. So what was said about me uglified can be useful to me in getting the message and correcting my ways. I getting to the place finally in my life where I had no desire to sling mud at anybody. I don't like the way a lot of people do things and conduct their affairs. But he didn't tell me I'd like this. He said, you have to love people. You love your brother. Turn to Galatians 5 and verse 14 and 15. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as thyself, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. You can't do that. There's so much in the Bible about this subject and, and in Ephesians about, you know, we once were people that learned to hate. We lived in malice. Our old life was full of malice and hatred. The last day will be typified by hatred. Haters of good, haters of God, it's all over the world. And you're living in the midst of it, you're beginning to see it, and you know what you're supposed to hate yourself. You're supposed to avoid all of that. And verse 19 and 20, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Those are all sexual sins. Then idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. These are things amongst us. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of which I tell you before, as I've told you also in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's what you should hate. You should hate that stuff. You should hate lust and uncleanness. You should hate anything that wants to tarnish your spirit. You should hate it. Amen. 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 Bow your head and close your eyes.
Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for loving us, for opening our eyes and teaching us and keeping us from sin. Expand our understanding of your ways that we may respect you and all that you do in such a way that we honor you, that we stand with you. Give us good hearts towards our fellow man, but let us keep our distance from the evil and the sin that is in this world. And as you hate it, we must also hate it. Father, I ask you to bless this congregation of people here tonight. You've been so good to us all these years, all these years. You've kept us. You're refining us. You deal with us. I ask you to keep doing that. Bring us to that place where we are exactly what you want. May the word have that major role in doing that. We ask you to make it clear to us in Jesus' name. Amen.